Thankful to you for another week. I pray that you would be with us today, be with my brothers and sisters. Please forgive us of our sins, Lord, that we committed against you this week. We pray that you would uh, help us to truly turn from them and turn to you, seek you, seek your face while you may be found. Uh, Be with my brother as he preaches the word and um, help us to uh, understand and apply it to our lives and uh, We are grateful to you for your kindness and mercy that you've shown us, and uh, pray that you continue to grow us in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 13, verse 4. So far in chapter 13, we've looked at verse 1. And there we saw the feast, Christ's death, and his love for his people. We skipped over verse 2. We'll deal with Judas when we get to verse 18. We looked at verse 3 last week, and we spoke about the dignity of the person who is washing the disciples' feet. This is the God-man. And now this morning, we'll look at the act itself, the time, and then the manner. The act, the time, the manner. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Amen. So far, as we looked at this chapter, really we're focusing upon Christ and the vivid example of love which he displays in this chapter. This morning, we're going to take a look at the act itself, foot washing, when he washes the disciples' feet. And of course, I don't mean the feast. Look down with me at verse 4. He rose from supper. That's the time there. He rose from supper. And then we'll look at the manner in which he did it. And that, that's in verse 5. Uh, the end of verse 6, uh, excuse me, the end of ver- or halfway through verse 4. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel, girded himself. He poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. This is a great act of humility on the part of our Lord. And really, it was a necessary part of life in the Jewish world. 
Everywhere they traveled, there was sand, dirt, mud, clay, and they didn't have the convenience of, you know, closed-toed shoes. They walked around in slippers in this heat. And then the way that they ate sort of lended itself to foot washing being a necessity because they didn't have tables and chairs like we do. Their tables were maybe 12 to 18 inches off the ground. They would throw pillows or some cloth on the ground, and they would basically lay from head to feet around the table so that while you're eating, more than likely, you have someone's feet in your face. That's just the way that they ate. They laid, they relaxed at table. They laid there. And generally what was done in Palestine uh, uh, was to provide guests water for them to wash their own feet, which would have probably been what I did. (laughs) Wash your own feet. But, you know, this custom... We still sort of keep a very similar custom to this. In most folks' house, when you go into their house, you take your shoes off. Right? So we have similar customs, but here... So water would, would be provided, or if water wasn't provided, there was usually a servant who would do it. And the servant was not a Jewish servant. Was not a Jewish servant. Unless it was a wife washing the feet of her husband or children washing the feet of their father. Because it was regarded so lowly, a task or responsibility. You get the idea of this when John the Baptist says that he is unworthy to unloose the sandals of Jesus' feet. He's saying that his position, he he is so low uh, compared to who Christ is that he shouldn't touch the feet of the Savior. You get that idea there. Another place where this is brought up, and I think it's a very good example of the humility that is involved in foot washing, is in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 25, you have um, Hannah is... Um, well, let's, let's turn there. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 25. Hannah has a husband whose name is Nabal. And David's men would protect his uh, sheep as they were out, his his flocks. And they did it not because um, they knew Nabal, but because they were wise, and they knew that sheep-sharing time would come around, and they could say, hey, Nabal, while your sheep were out in the wild, while your flocks were out, we took care of them. We made sure that nobody messed with your stuff. And now all we're asking is if you could give us something to eat. So when the young men ask, uh, you could see this in uh, verse 6, chapter 25, and thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace to Nabal, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now, I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them nor was there anything missing from them all the time they were at Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let your young men find favor, let my young men, excuse me, find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please 
give whatever comes to your hand that your servants to your servants and to your son David. And Nabal says, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? I'm not giving him anything. But he has a wife. I said Hannah, but it's Abigail, who is very wise. And in verse 14, David's getting ready to kill Nabal and to take everything from him. In verse 14, we read this. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and were not hurt, nor did we miss anything, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. Okay? So when Nabal finds out what happens, he dies. Look at verse 23 now. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be, the iniquity of her husband. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I am your maidservant. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So what she does is she provides the food that David was asking for. Pretty wise woman. So David blesses her. He gives thanks. Look at verse 36. This is when Nabal dies. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So Nabal dies. Now when David hears this, verse 39, he heard that Nabal was dead. He said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. Pretty slick move on David's part, if you don't mind me saying. So he proposes to her. Now when she comes to him, listen to what she says. And this is, uh, she's displaying her humility here, how humble she is. Verse 41. Then she rose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Not to, watch your, not to wash your feet, but to wash the feet of your servants. She's, she's displaying her humility. She's, she, she knows he is the king of Israel. And she's saying she's not even worthy to wash his feet, but the feet of his servants. Now, if you're sitting here and you're a woman and you're bothered by the fact that she would wash the servant's feet, the servant's feet, 
Uh, you know, that's just your, your feminism and your lack of knowledge of biblical background. <laughs> that's all that is. <laughs> You're just, uh, this was common fare. This, this, is, this is what was done. Right? This is the way that they interacted with one another. And what she is doing, more than anything else, don't get stuck on the fact that she's washing his servant's feet, but on the expression of humility. Because that's what it was. And this is exactly what the act proves. The, the act proves Jesus' humility. It highlights his humility, how humble he was, his willingness to take the dirty feet of his disciples, and even Judas's, and wash his dirty feet. In this, of course, the passage in Matthew 28, excuse me, 2028, 20, really comes to fruition when Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's what he came to do. He came into the world to serve his disciples. And this really is an act of humility that is unparalleled in his earthly ministry as he washes his disciples' feet. But now to add to this, look at the time. Look at the time when he does this. John chapter 13. He rose from supper. That's when he did it. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. There's a, a, a bit of an issue. Like, look back at verse 2. It says, supper being ended. That should more than likely be translated, when supper was complete or done, the food had been brought out. They're, they're not done eating yet. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, same chapter, verse 26. Jesus answered, It is to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. They were still eating. If, if you remember from one of the Gospels, Jesus takes offense with Simon the leper who he had healed because nobody washes Jesus' feet. He says, you didn't even offer me water to clean my feet when I walked into your house. And this woman whom you're calling a sinner, she's not stopped crying and wiping my feet with her tears. So Jesus is leaning with his disciples and he sees their dirty feet. And he doesn't say, ew, right? I'm eating, wash your feet. He gets up in the middle of eating his meal and starts to wash their feet. When supper was done, when it was completed, and in the middle of everybody eating, Jesus begins to wash their feet. He was inconvenienced for the sake of others. He was willing to stop what he was doing in the middle of a feast and wash the feet of his disciples. This is the Savior whom we serve. And you can take that back, right? You, you, you look at eternity past when the Father commits to give a people to the Son, the Son is willing, humanly speaking, to be inconvenienced by taking flesh upon himself, by becoming subject to the law for the sake of those whom he loves. Now look at the manner in which he does this. How does he do it? He does it completely. 
right? He doesn't, he doesn't skimp because he is the Lord of the universe. Listen to the way that it's described. He lays aside his garments. So generally, when uh, the Jews would dress, they would wear three garments. An outer garment, an inner garment, and then one that was close to their body. Kind of like uh, long underwear, right? And over that, they would wear their clothes and maybe a, a cloak over it. And they would tie themselves with, a, with some kind of a loose belt, a piece of leather, or whatever it was, to keep their clothes close to their body. And whenever they were engaged in any kind of labor, they would usually take off the top layer and just keep the two uh, on, two bottom layers on. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He takes off his coat. Why? Because he's about to get busy <laughs> cleaning some dirty feet. Uh, it, it shows that Jesus was engaged in the act. It wasn't just that their feet were dirty and they had to be clean as a matter of custom. He wanted to serve them. He wanted to clean their feet, and he wanted to do it properly. So he takes off his cloak. He lays aside his garments. He takes a towel, and he girds himself with it. Now, this is the towel that's going to be used to dip in the basin, to wash the feet, and then another corner of that same towel would be used to wash, to wash and clean the dirt off the feet. So he takes the towel and he girds it to himself. And after that, he takes water into a basin. He pours it into the basin and he washes the feet of his disciples. And he wipes them with a towel with which he was girded. So the manner in which he does it, Jesus, washing of his disciples' feet, is an act or it's a display that he does what he does for his disciples perfectly and completely. There's nothing that he leaves out in his service for his people. Everything that is necessary for his people to be clean, particularly in this world, Jesus takes it upon himself to do it for them. They don't do it for themselves. Nobody helps Jesus here. There's nobody bringing him the water. There's nobody who brought him the pail. Nobody thought about washing his feet. None of those things are involved. Jesus himself takes it, takes this responsibility, and he does it rightly. And as J.C. Rao puts it, I think he puts it really well, it's not so much the act. He does do it. But it's the person who does it. That's ultimately the issue. It's the person who is willing to wash the feet of the disciples that makes it so remarkable to do something so humbling. And we don't have a connection with this because we don't wash people's feet. Figuratively or literally. Um, Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, he says, Many interpreters consider Christ washing his disciples' feet as a representation of his whole undertaking. Right. So what the foot washing represents is everything that Jesus has done. Uh, Paul, the way Paul explains it in uh, Philippians 2, I think we looked at Philippians 2 last week, but let's look there again. The way that Paul describes it, um, what Jesus accomplishes in Philippians 2 may help us uh, see this. That the foot washing, in essence, is a picture of Christ's entire undertaking, of everything that he does. For the sake of his disciples. 
First, uh, beginning at verse 1, Paul begins with, um, with an ethical command. All right, so verses 1 through 4, in particular, are a command. Right, listen to it. Therefore, if there is any consolation, their comfort or encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one of one mind and of excuse me, of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. So 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 unity is what he's stressing here. Let there be let there be unity among the people of God. How do you do that? Let nothing done, be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do things for yourself. And for the sake of your own glory and your own good. And here, of course, he's talking about service in the context of the local church and when you're ministering to God's people. We could be mercenary when we do that, right? Like out for ourselves when we serve people. You know, so, um, yeah, I'm not going to do... I won't come and shovel the snow outside the building because nobody's going to see me do it. But when there's a bunch of people here, like I'll sweep and mop and vacuum because they'll see me do it. Right? That's, that's like a mercenary attitude. You know, you're just in it so that people will say good things about you or look at you with some esteem. But Paul is saying, don't do things for those reasons. Let nothing be done for selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than himself. Right? With a level of humility. You esteem other people greater than yourselves. Not because, the, it's, not, it's not the mindset that says, um, Lisa is better than I am. No, that's not what he's talking about here. But the way that we're to see God's people is, that the, is those who have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of the Lamb. We're supposed to see the value of God's people because of the worth that God places upon them. That's the lens through which we look at them. That's why service for the Christian flows almost naturally. Now, you do need some commands. He's giving some commands here to do it. But it should flow naturally because the way that we esteem God's people is in Christ. We see them in Jesus as his people. So so then, of course, if we look at them that way, we can esteem them better than ourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's exactly what Jesus is doing at that table. He's not looking at his own interests. He's looking at the interests of his disciples. And not the fact that their feet are dirty, because it's the symbolism that's important. His willingness to serve them in such a menial task to ensure that their feet are clean so that they can enjoy a good meal without being disturbed. It's not just the foot, foot washing, it's the symbolism behind it. So then he adds, let this mind be in you. What mind? The mind of verses 1 through 4. Which was also in Christ Jesus. 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery um, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation by taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. What does he do? There is a sense where Jesus lays down something. What does he lay down? His prerogatives as Lord and God of the world. And he girds himself with humility. This, the same humble picture that, that, that they may have seen when they saw Jesus putting that towel around his waist is the picture that we should see when we consider him incarnate. That was an act of humility. Or the way that older theologians would put it, it was his, part of his humiliation. For, the, for, for Christ to be man was humiliating. And he did it for his people. But taking, uh, but but made himself of no reputation. He didn't consider himself right. There was no selfish ambition or conceit. He made himself of no reputation. He took taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of flesh. That's the same idea there. That he takes the cloak and he, the towel and he puts it on. That's the same idea. He takes on humanity. He takes on, in other words, humility. Matthew Henry continues, he says, Yet he rose from his table in glory, laid aside his robes of light, girded himself with our nature, took upon him the form of a servant, came not to be ministered to, but to minister, poured out his blood, poured out his soul unto death, and thereby prepared a labor to wash us from our sins. If you take this act, the foot washing, and you, and, and you interpret it rightfully as a symbol of the entire service that Christ performed for his people, he does it for their good. If you take those three points, the act itself, the act of coming into the world was humiliating. But not only that, the time when he does it. When does he do it? Is the nation of Israel at its pinnacle? Where, there's, where they're ruling themselves and they have vast regions of land and power? Is it right after Solomon when the temple is just filled to the brim with gold? No, they were slaves. The nation of Israel was subject to the Romans. He didn't even have a throne to sit in. But he inconvenienced himself. And he comes into the world during that time for the sake of his people. But not only that, the manner in which he does it, he ensures that their salvation is completely secure by being perfectly obedient to their father. And the filth and the sin that covers his people, covered him. You have a small picture of this in the book of Exodus. You remember in the book of Exodus when the people are being bitten by the serpents. Remember that? And what does Moses do? Moses takes a staff and he puts a serpent on that staff, a gold serpent. And for the people to be healed, what must they do? Look at the serpent, right? Isn't that a strange thing though? You know, doctors eventually got their symbol for medicine 
from, I forget what it's called. What is it? But anyway. But uh, they, they look to this object. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, what, what is the purpose? What's the representation of the serpent? Well, this is the connection. The serpent in the garden was cursed. God cursed the serpent. And it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that you have that curse. God speaks to the serpent, and he curses the serpent. Now, the people of Israel, the, the, the accursed thing is what they must look at to be healed. And upon the cross, that's what Jesus becomes. Jesus bears a curse. He becomes an accursed thing. And he says in the Gospel of John, as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For what purpose? That everyone might see him accursed. That towel that he wore to wash the disciples' feet is all he wore when he hung on a cross. It's the same, same word. The same little towel. I'm certain it's not the same one he washed their feet with, but something similar. And as they looked upon him on the cross, beaten, mistreated, abandoned by his disciples and abandoned by God, in a sense, what did they see? They saw he, he's cursed. He's a cursed of God. Look at him hanging on a tree there. In his shame and in agony, mistreated. For, for what? So that we might be cleansed. So if you look at the cross through that particular lens, or excuse me, the foot washing through that particular lens, you see the significance, the value of the thing. And you're no longer arguing about whether we should watch each other's feet on Sunday at church, which is like so irrelevant to the conversation. That is not the point. I'll finish with this quote from, from A.W. Pink. He says, It is a wonderful thing that our Lord never relinquished his servant character. Christ will serve forever. He continues to serve us even today. Because even today, our feet get dirty. Every single day. But what does he say to us in John? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Enthroned in heaven, he continues to wash our feet. That's the Savior whom we serve. That's the one whom we believe in. What a joy and a pleasure it is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Christ. And of course, Lord, we will, um, we will get into how we must imitate it. But let us, let us uh, first and foremost, Lord, fix our eyes upon him. Meditate upon that truth. His, his willing humiliation uh, for the sake of our good. Lord God, we thank you for your son and for his unfathomable humility. Lord Jesus, what a joy it is to know that we serve you and that in many respects it is because you serve us that we are even able uh, to serve you. The Spirit of God, we ask that you would give us that mind as you work in us. As you regenerated us, Lord, we ask that you would sanctify us and give us a willing and a humble spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now please stand and...